Hello, everyone, and welcome to Found, the TechCrunch podcast where we bring you the stories behind the startups. Before we dive into today's episode, just a few housekeeping notes. A quick reminder that if you are a listener of Found, maybe it's your first episode, maybe you've been listening every week for months. First of all, thank you. But we ask if you could please rate and review the show. We love getting your feedback, positive or negative. So if you could just take a few minutes to do that, we would greatly appreciate it. The other thing I want to touch on before we get started is some super exciting news. It's my pleasure to introduce the new found co-host, Dominic Midori Davis. She goes by Dom. She's a rock star. Dom, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Maybe if you want to tell the listeners a little bit about you and sort of where you cover so they get to know you a little bit better before we dive in. Yes. Oh, my goodness. I'm so happy to be here, first of all. I'm Dominic. I cover venture capital and startups, more so focusing on how that industry intersects with like culture and politics and stuff. Ooh, that's so interesting and sounds way more interesting than what I cover in the venture space. No, 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 no. We complement each other well. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully we compliment each other on the podcast, too, because today we've got a great show for you. We're talking to Allison Lavira and Lauren De Niro Pfeiffer from Juliet Wine, which is a luxury, sustainable wine company that makes very fancy and flirty boxed wine. Hey, Allison, how's it going? Hi, Becca. It's going great. Thanks for having us. Oh, thanks for coming on. And Allison today is joined by Lauren. We've got two folks from Juliet Wine today. Lauren, how are you doing? I am doing wonderful. Thank you so much. And yes, thank you for having us, Becca. Of course. Well, I think what makes the most sense to get started here today is maybe if you guys want to dive into what Juliet Wine is exactly. Absolutely. So with Juliet, we are reinventing boxed wine. And we're doing that by creating a product that offers high-quality wine, in super innovative packaging that is also quite beautiful. And the mission behind what we're doing is really rooted in sustainability. So very early on in our journey of our company, we discovered that glass bottles and their transport are actually the single largest contributor to the wine industry's carbon footprint. And box wine, on the other hand, has the lowest environmental impact of any wine packaging format. And so by choosing to drink your everyday wine out of a box versus a bottle, consumers can actually have a significant reduction on the emissions of the products that they're using. But there's a real barrier against mass adoption of boxed wine in the US, which is this negative stigma. It's sort of perceived as cheap and low quality and conjures up images of slapping the bag in college. And so we knew that in order to overcome this, we had to create something that really transcended the category and offered a boxed wine that was beautiful and super high quality. And so we hope that by doing this, we can really break this negative stigma against boxed wine and ultimately shift the culture of everyday wine drinking away from glass bottles, you know, for the sake of the planet. So we've created what we call the Eco Magnum, which is a patent pending packaging format. It's a beautiful paperboard cylinder that holds 1.5 liters of wine. So the equivalent of two bottles of wine. And we work with very high quality AVA vineyards in the central coast of California to create three varietals. So Sauvignon Blanc, Grenache Rosé, and a red wine, you know, Noir. And so that's available at retail in three states and online, which is available to ship to 44 states. And so we've really started to create this movement around premiumization of boxed wine and consumption of wine in alternative formats in order to lower environmental impact of the wine industry. Mm -hmm. 
And assuming that you guys were probably into drinking wine prior to this, but (laughs) what made you guys take the plunge to launch this company? And what was the buildup like of having the idea, being passionate about the space, but then actually taking the plunge? So we're both very passionate about wine. That's something that we've shared throughout our very long friendship, 20 years. And we realized that there wasn't a boxed wine on the market that either of us wanted to drink would be proud to serve at a dinner party with our friends, give as a gift, want to see in our own refrigerators at home. And we really felt that there was an opportunity here to create a beautiful wine that went into a beautiful package that really conveyed the quality of the wine that was inside. So we came up with this idea that box wine was ripe for disruption. And based on our backgrounds in marketing and design and sales and Allison's time spent in the wine and spirits industry, which has been invaluable to our growth, that we were the right people to do this. So we set out to develop this brand new packaging style, as Allison said. It's a proprietary design. It's completely unlike anything else that the box wine market has ever seen. It's cylindrical in shape. It's compact. It holds two bottles of wine in each package. And it really is something that I think is beautiful, that is something you would be proud to give as a gift to a hostess or a friend, have sitting on your dinner table. And the wine inside is just absolutely incredible. Yeah, I have a question. So what is it about glass that makes it so harmful to the environment compared to the packaging that you're using? It's a combination of different things. There's a lot of academic research out there about this, but it's a combination of the energy it takes to create the glass, the weight of it. So in the transport, it takes more energy to transport. It's the atypical shape, which requires more packaging in transport. It's also the low recyclability rate. So, you know, glass has a much lower recyclability rate in the U.S. than paper or even plastic. And so it's all these things combined. There's an organization in California that sort of did what has become the benchmark study. They did a big life cycle assessment of packaging formats in wine. And yeah, that was their conclusion that they drew that has really caused a lot of dialogue in the industry about this fact, especially because glass bottles from a functional perspective are not necessary for wines that are not aged in bottle. And that is 95 to 97% of wines that are consumed within a year of purchase. And so they're not really necessary. It's just a tradition. It's historically been the format since, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago that's been used. And so people haven't really innovated or moved beyond it. But from a functional perspective, there's not a, a real reason to be using it for the wine that you're drinking on a Tuesday night after work or, you know, sharing with a couple of friends over a dinner party. So it's definitely something that I think this research around glass bottles and their impact has caused a lot of conversation about changes that need to happen. Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah, that's so interesting because I feel like my dad's really into wine and um, my aunt and uncle own a winery. And I feel like so much about wine is like this shape of glass is for this specific drinking experience for this type of wine. And you use this type at this temperature for this type of wine. And it feels so specific. So learning that like the bottle is actually not a part of that intentionality is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. How did, how did people land on the bottle in terms of saying, this is what wine has to be packaged in? Like, how did we get there? Oh my gosh. I, 
Actually, off the top of my head, I don't know. It was a long time ago and it had to do with aging in bottle. And I actually don't really know the answer to that question off the top of my head, but it was hundreds of years ago that this was sort of decided. And, and it was a lot of it to do with, you know, how the, the wine evolves over time in the bottle. And, you know, the reality is in this day and age, most wines aren't aged in bottles. And, and we're not trying to replace the ones that are, you know, these gorgeous red wines from Bordeaux and Burgundy that you want to put away for a decade before you drink it. Like that's not our game and glass bottles aren't necessary for that. But the vast majority of wine, it's just not necessary. Mm-hmm. And sticking on the packaging for just a second, because I agree with what was said earlier, the packaging really is quite innovative compared to what you've seen from the box wine market previously. And knowing that you guys have a background in that space, if you want to talk about what the choices were there, especially the shape, it's such a fun, interesting shape compared to the traditional rectangular box. How did you guys walk through some of those choices when you were deciding kind of how to set up that packaging? Yeah, it was actually a bit of a, a journey, I guess. We when we initially started out trying to design what would be a higher end box wine, we did start by considering different ways to design the traditional box that's actually a rectangle. And we were just up against a wall because we couldn't envision it in the settings that we knew we wanted our wine to be consumed in. Like we couldn't imagine one of these traditional boxes on a table at a dinner party with our friends. You know, it just doesn't look right. And so we started thinking about how we could better bridge the gap between box and bottled wine. And that's where we landed on this cylindrical shape. It was very much inspired by these high-end gift boxes that you sometimes buy like whiskey and other brown spirits in. And so nothing that was similar to what we wanted existed. So we partnered up with a product engineer and worked through the design aspects with them. Had to go through a few iterations to get it right, but we're really happy with where we landed. And we actually have a utility patent and design patent pending on it. So within all of that, did you kind of shape test in a sense, like the exact type of circle you wanted or like, or or were there like runner up shapes that you were also looking at, like triangles or something? I don't think so. No, we, we, <laughs> there weren't. We just being honest, like we, to play off of what Allison was just saying, to expand on that, because we knew we wanted to bridge the gap between the box and the bottle. Bottles are cylindrical in shape, boxes have hard edges. So creating something that married the two, we felt would represent the fact that we. We really were sort of a combination of both. We had all of the wonderful attributes of boxed wine. So it stays fresh for six weeks after opening. It's lightweight. You can carry it around very easily. We have a handle on it versus the glass bottle, which is heavy and can be awkward in shape and can be quite clunky. And so the cylinder just, you know, once we landed on that idea, we ran with it. Mm -hmm. So it's easy to like also transport places. Very easy to transport. Yes. I mean, you can put this in your checked luggage, which we do frequently when we're traveling for work, and you don't have to worry about any spilling, leakage. The box maintains its integrity and shape, and the wine inside is perfectly safe mm-hmm. in the bag. Yes. That's really cool. And something else that sort of plays off of that, and you mentioned this earlier, Allison, the concept of the stigma that exists around boxed wine and maybe sort of intentionally choosing a different packaging system helps combat that just from the start. But thinking about how people do associate their experiences with boxed wine in the past, how do you guys think about both incorporating 
going against that stigma in your marketing, but also in sort of pushback from some of that feedback you guys have probably already gotten or will associate with the yeah, stigma. Yeah, it's a really great call out that this shape helps consumers make the leap or make the shift over to box wine because it isn't so much of a difference. I think one interesting thing that we found with the shape that has helped us tremendously with adoption is that because it's a cylinder, it's a circle, retailers are actually merchandising it on shelf next to super premium bottles of wine. So like $20 bottles of wine rather than putting us in the back on a bottom shelf next to, you know, these sort of $15 boxes of wine. And so that has really helped because I think that we're sourcing demand from these people that are used to buying a bottle of wine, but they see us next to it and it kind of like piques their interest. You know, what is this? This looks so different. And it kind of leads to a conversation where, you know, we have a chance or the the person at the retailer has a chance to educate them about what we're doing and why and what's so great about the format. And so I think that having this shape, unlike anything else, that also allows us to be put right up next to the bottles. It associates us with the bottles and it also really sparks conversation, which opens up the opportunity for us or whoever the touch point is to educate them on what we're all about and why they should try it. I will say that like the fact that we have really high quality wine inside, sometimes we do need to, people need to try it to understand. So we do a lot of, you know, marketing that is more experiential where we're doing tastings in stores and restaurants and bars at events because a lot of times people their interest is definitely piqued by the packaging they think it's gorgeous they want to know more but it's sometimes not until they taste the wine that it all really crystallizes for them and they confer because what we're doing from a packaging perspective is very interesting but at the end of the day the product also has to be great like the wine has to be great or people just aren't going to buy it no one's going to buy it just because of the packaging so that will often seal the well, deal for us maybe they will the first <laughs> maybe time. the first time but we're not going to get them again so. <laughs> but i love like one of our favorite things is hearing and we get this feedback a lot in reviews or from people at events they taste it and then the first thing they say is oh my gosh i cannot believe this is boxed wine and it's so good and this is one of the best wines i've ever had and it's in a box and we love that and that's exactly what we need to do to really continue to overcome the stigma and build this movement around premiumization of box wine yeah and kind of on that point in terms of the product and the quality of it what was the story about how you went about finding like the vineyard to work with to make all the wine so we knew we wanted to do a california wine we were very interested in central coast the style of wine that we wanted which is low intervention very refined and elegant but fresh and fruit forward they're doing a lot of that in the central coast really really well and so we really just reached out to a lot of people in our network that touched the wine industry in one way or another and sort of put out feelers that we were looking for a partner, looking for a winery, looking for someone to work with on this. And so we we were introduced to several different, I guess, candidates, if you will, of who we could partner with on this. And so we actually did a little roadshow in California where we visited a bunch of the different wineries and met all the people that would help us bring this to life. And we were super fortunate that one of the people that we met actually through a wine club that I'm in, funny enough. They have a certified sustainable winery. They were willing to take on another client. 
the wine that they're already making was very much in line with the style that we were interested in. And they were able to also help us source grapes from all these incredible AVAs throughout the Central Coast. So it all sort of came together just based on reaching out to our networks and sort of putting it out there what we're trying to do. And I think that a lot of people in the trade have been really receptive to what what we're working on. And so they've been very supportive. We have found a lot of times that when we need help getting through a challenge or finding a new resource, that the wine community has been extremely collaborative and helpful. And you can kind of just reach out and people will point you in the right direction. It's, it's, it's really welcoming like that. Wait, and so I'm so curious, like on this journey, is there something about the wine industry that surprised you or something that you weren't expecting like before you started? Well, I've worked in the wine and spirits industry for years. So I'll let Lauren answer this one. Lauren, what were your surprises? (laughs) (laughs) I was pleasantly surprised by how supportive and receptive the other members of the wine industry that we were meeting with were to what we were trying to build. Because at the end of the day, wine is, it's an agricultural farming business. And luckily, most of the people that we encounter really care about sustainability and care about reducing waste, care about the planet. And they were so interested and intrigued by our mission and the fact that we were approaching it from the angle of reinventing this packaging style that within the industry they know is so much more eco-friendly, but just very few people have tried to crack that stigma. Um, so that was a really pleasant surprise. And think of a negative surprise, which is a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> and staying on sort of the company building side for a moment, knowing that you guys have known each other for over two decades now, and you just started this company in 2021, what was it like going from knowing each other, being friends, like having this very different relationship, and then deciding to partner up for this company, having to adjust that when you guys did launch? So Allison and I had known each other through our 20s. In our early 20s, we were both working in fashion in New York. In our later 20s, we had the opportunity to work together a couple of times, collaborate between two businesses that we were both working at at the time. And so we we respected each other's work ethic and ability and tenacity, I think, a great deal. We had talked years ago about eventually building something together, but we hadn't had that great idea, that aha moment. And then when we did... I think something that was great and has been instrumental to our success is that we took a look at what each of our individual skill sets are and where we both thought that we would bring the most value to the business. So we we both sort of mapped those out individually, and then we basically checked each other's work to see if we agreed with what those strengths were. And so we separated the company into different verticals, so we managed different sides of the business. And I think that's been a really key element to our success, the fact that we have very different and very complementary skill sets. No, that's so interesting because I know we had a startup on Brex a few months ago where they had co-CEOs and there was also like friends since they were 16 and like this whole thing. And it's always so interesting hearing about how companies do end up splitting up the work, especially when you have people coming in with a prior relationship or as you mentioned, who came with different skill sets, kind of putting everyone where they will be like the most fit. So that's interesting, The setting it up as verticals. It almost sounds like you've structured this company almost like a software company. <laughs> almost. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think it was really probably easier for us than for some other founding teams, just because, as Lauren mentioned, we have very different skill sets. 
it's almost like left brain, right brain, that sort of like division where, you know, I have more of industry experience and business background, but she's much more creative and design forward and like a real connector with like a huge network. And so it, it was very easy to find like a divide. And listen, the reality is in a startup, you're a very young company, everyone's sort of going to be working on everything at some point. So there is overlap right. here and there. But broadly speaking, we have very different strengths. And we both know that because we've known each other for so long. So it was a bit easier for us, I think, than your standard team. I also do think, and, and we've talked about this before publicly, what's nice about doing this as friends that have known each other for a long time is that there is an element of trust where... Mm. You know, we, it's sort of a given, you know, I've, I've been in professional situations where I was always doubting, like, is another stakeholder or a peer maybe trying to, you know, undermine me or stab me in the back. And I've, I've had those professional experiences before. And when you launch something like this with someone that you've known for decades and trust implicitly, you don't really have to think about that. So it takes one layer of sort of tension or stress out of the whole equation and allows you to just focus in a bigger way on the business and the kind of challenges at hand. Mm -hmm. Knowing that you do have a background in this industry, Allison, this probably helped a lot. But thinking about building a company in wine is such obviously a regulated industry. Anything <laughs> that touches alcohol is. And you have different state rules. You have rules about shipping cross states and all that kind of really fun logistical side of this. And I'm curious how you guys think about scale when taking some of those considerations in mind, having to keep track of like navigating all of those different rule sets. Yeah, compliance in wine and spirits is really, really daunting. I think that fortunately, because I have some experience in the industry, we knew what we were up against and we knew the pieces we had to put in place. And our approach to it has very much been, let's get all of the compliance pieces in place and out of the way up front. And then mm. we don't have to worry about it as we scale. So for example, with direct to consumer, you know, when you want to ship as a winery direct to consumer, you need, I think it's like something like 90 licenses and tax permits and all these different pieces oh of paper God. that you have to put in place. And I have seen and heard about companies that do it little by little as they grow. And so we just chose to just get it all out of the way up front one fell swoop. And then, you know, you do have to renew and year after year, there's continuous paperwork, but you have partners for that to sort of handle that. And that was our choice is like, let's just get it out of the way as much out of the way right at the beginning. And then, you know, not have to worry about constantly running into red tape as we expand bit by bit by bit which I don't know if that's the right decision or the wrong decision, but that's worked for us. <laughs> no, definitely keeps you from going and doing something and then realizing you've like forgot that step that needed to be taken beforehand. Absolutely. So I, I could see, we, I, yeah, I could see why that would be like a smart path. I have a follow-up question to that. What does that look like from an international standpoint? Like how would you get your product in like France or something? Oh, that's it. I actually don't know the answer to that question. Um, Maybe we'll find out soon because we have quite a lot of demand from the UK in particular. Um, so I'll, I'll have to let you know if and when we get to that stage. <laughs> but, a follow-up episode. Yeah, I would imagine it's just more of the same in terms of just a whole lot of paperwork and a whole lot of permits and licenses that are required. That's sort of the standard for wine and spirits. Would you expand into like beer or something? I imagine like, I don't know, I think that's big in the UK. 
I think it's big everywhere. I know, I know. Um, <laughs> Would you like expand? I, we haven't talked about expanding to different products. We've talked about expanding to different formats. So we talk about, you know, what else can we do in the alternative packaging space that is, you know, also an alternative to glass bottles, but different from what we're doing, whether it's a different size or a different format. People ask us a lot about kegs and cans and everything like that. So we've considered expanding in some of those areas. But yeah, to date, I mean, listen, we're open to it if the demand is there, but we haven't talked about any sort of expansion to a different product category. Mm -hmm. Would you ever like, because right now you work with vineyards in California, would you ever work with vineyards somewhere else and somewhere up like other parts of the nation or the world? Absolutely. Yes. We actually are planning to bring some wine in from Italy. So the exact timing of that Mm. is yet to be confirmed, but we are absolutely looking at importing some wonderful Italian wines and adding that to the portfolio, probably as a limited edition special. Very fun. I was going to ask about that too, sort of how you guys picked those three wines to start. Is that just sort of those three styles of wine or what made sense for the vineyards you were working with or what you guys like to drink? How did you decide on those first three to launch with? So those are the three varietals or flavors that are fast growing and are what we thought would be our target demographic, which is really like millennial women. And so rather than right off the bat going for the largest volume or the most popular grapes, we decided to go for the ones that were growing faster. And so that was something that we felt would resonate with our audience. And it also does happen to be kind of the ones that us, we we like to drink and our friends like to drink, but that's more anecdotal. We did a bunch of market research to see what would resonate with millennial women. Mm -hmm. And kind of going off of that, with the note that obviously you guys did end up going with things that you, of course, like to drink yourselves. (laughs) I know with entrepreneurs, frequently they get into their business idea because they're passionate about the space or they're passionate about the sector they're working in. But I feel like with something like wine, it's a little different than that. Because like if you're passionate about supply chain, like supply chains probably still work fully in your mind, even if you end up pursuing a business in it or the like, your passion about it isn't going to be like, on the weekend, I do supply chain. I don't even know what that would look like. (laughs) But we're talking about wine here, which is obviously something you guys were used to enjoying, dinner parties, going out to bars, things like that prior to this, and I'm curious kind of how you guys think about keeping that passion you have for this industry, for this product, when you're now, it's now your full-time job, there's now going to be setbacks because of it, and sort of, I don't say hardships is a big grand thing, but of course, like, stuff happens. It's a startup. Not everything goes perfectly the first time. And how do you guys think about keeping that passion as you work to build in the same space? For me, the fact that at the end of the day, as many challenges as we may face, as founders that are building a business from scratch, we make wine and wine brings people together. So the reward there of knowing that we've created a delicious, clean tasting, high-end, beautiful product that we can share with our friends that brings people together, we can share with, with strangers, it's bringing them together. For me, that's something that really keeps me going and keeps, keeps the passion there, keeps it alive, I suppose. Yeah, it's wine. It's one of my favorite things in the world and great to enjoy. And, you know, it's it's a conversation starter. It's something that so many people can enjoy. That makes a difference for me. Yeah, mm-hmm. I totally agree with that. I have not gotten 
tired of wine and spirits and I've worked in it for years. I hope I never do because wine is kind of the only thing I indulge in. But I think for me, it's part of it is that there is a never ending amount of things to learn about it. You know, there's always mm. a new varietal or a new region or a new place where you can go and visit the wineries. And it's very much tied up in culture and food and history and all of those things I love. And so I personally, even though we have this business and this is, you know, takes a lot of my time and I have a certain relationship with our products, I think in general, like, there's just so much to explore in the wine world. And, you know, you could study it or learn about it or experience it for the rest of your life. And there's still be more out there to learn. And so that's what gets me excited about it. I love trying new and interesting varietals from different regions that I've never experienced before. And like, to me, stuff like that is really exciting. And so I think this idea that there's kind of an endless amount to learn about the space, the industry keeps me interested and excited, even though it is now my full-time job. And one thing I was curious about is sort of the funding aspect of this. Because I know you guys have raised some funding and it was mainly, it seemed like from like well-known operators and angel investors as well. What kind of feedback did you guys get when you were looking to raise that funding? And what did you hear from potential investors about the company? It was a long road. And we are fortunate to have raised what we did. The feedback, the feedback was really positive. Honestly, people were very intrigued and impressed by the idea. And a lot of people made the comment, why hasn't anyone thought of this yet? Mm -hmm. That's not to say that there weren't challenges. You know, the raise in the beginning, the first several months, it was a very slow drip. And then once we finalized the packaging style and design, and once we had the wine itself, which we could sample, the speed at which we raised increased exponentially. And we ended up raising more than double what we initially set mm -hmm. out to raise. Yeah, we raised 3.5 million, which we were really excited and proud about. We were very oversubscribed. But yeah, I think for when you're raising money for a consumer good or a consumer product, and you don't have a prototype or you don't have a product that you can sample them, it's really difficult. Mm -hmm. So as Lauren said, that first couple of months, we were really just raising on founder market fit and a good business plan and a good idea. And, you know, we were getting some checks in from people that knew us and knew what we were capable of. But yeah, once we had samples, like we had the actual product to show people and wine that they could sample, then they really understood what we were trying to do and saw the opportunity there, which is really massive. And from then on, it became a lot easier to raise. And do you think, and maybe you guys haven't thought much about this, which would be totally fine. But it was weird when I first started covering venture, it seemed like venture was very like, we don't want to go anywhere near alcohol. Like we don't want to do any kind of companies like that, mainly because of their LPs and different investors backing them, having clauses against investing and stuff like that. But it seems like over the last five years, that's completely changed. I feel like there's so many hard seltzer companies now, cannabis companies, and like, well, they're probably you know, coming across <laughs> the same fundraising struggles every company comes across. But it seems like, in theory, they're having a lot less trouble raising from these venture funds. And I'm curious, what do you guys see as sort of your fundraising future? Do you see this as like a venture-backable business? Does it seem like you're getting interest from those kind of firms as well? Or does it seem like a lot is going to come more from that operator angel side, that more like personal touch investing? Well, we actually have some of our investors are venture. I do think venture is something that is in our future. 
I think that this shift that you're talking about is due to a couple of reasons. One, there's been a lot of big, very public exits with these huge price tags attached. And so I think that there's this realization that, oh, wait, I can make a pretty hefty return on alcohol, which maybe that wasn't the perception in the past. I also think that wine and spirits traditionally has not been omni-channel, has really shied away from e-commerce and direct-to-consumer. And obviously having a tech angle or a tech component of the business is really interesting to a lot of venture firms. And so this rise of DTC as a increasingly more important channel in wine and spirits, and certainly for businesses like ours, I think is really interesting to them. And then also, we've kind of gotten into rocky economic times. And at the end of the day, wine and spirits is largely recession proof. And so I've talked to more than one venture firm just sort of to keep them in the loop on our progress who's mentioned that to me and mentioned that they're specifically looking at alcohol because of that reason. So I think there's a lot of things going in our favor as it pertains to you know, venture in the future, but we'll see. Yeah, I actually meant to ask you in terms of how inflation and even the ongoing pandemic has impacted maybe supply chain issues or other elements <laughs> of the business. <laughs> Seems like yes. yes. Well, we, we launched about six months later than we wanted to. So <laughs> that was largely due to supply chain and shipping issues. That, that for us has been the biggest thing was that supply chain crunch that everyone kind of got into at the same time. We had issues getting some of our packaging components into the U.S. when they were scheduled to arrive. But beyond that, we haven't really seen anything impact us, not from an inflation side, thankfully, so far. Mm -hmm. uh, the pandemic, from a sales perspective, there was a huge spike, actually, in boxed wine sales during the pandemic. Yeah, hmm which certainly worked in our favor. And I think the practice of consumers traditionally purchasing their wine and spirits and beers in store, that shifted. And so many people turned to online ordering. And I think that that behavioral pattern has continued even now that we're mostly out of the pandemic, which has certainly only served us, that people are now more open to trying a new wine from the internet. That certainly has not been the case historically. Yeah. And, you know, mm -hmm. um, a trend that's at least been on tech Twitter, I don't know if this is out in the world, um, but is that people have kind of been looking for alternatives to alcohol. And so I was wondering if you guys were ever thinking about expanding the business toward creating like a non-alcoholic version of your products. Yeah, we've definitely talked about it and we've gotten the question and the request here and there. I think that the non-alcoholic space where it's sort of mimicking alcohol is very small right now. And it's also quite saturated. So it's not something that we've decided to do strategically right now, but it's certainly on our radar because we see that trend. It's definitely a growing space. And you see, you know, there's now like retailers like Boisson that are like specifically dedicated just to that. And so there's really exciting things happening and it's definitely on our radar, but nothing right now that we're working on. Mm-hmm. And thinking about the rest of this year, like you guys are still a very new and young company, what does 2023 look like for you guys? 
well, expansion yeah. <laughs> in, in many different directions. A couple of things we're really excited about are some new varietals. So we are expanding into Chardonnay and Cabernet Sauvignon, which was in our 2022 harvest. So that'll be our new vintage that comes out this summer. And then we're doing a limited edition orange wine, which is something that we are so excited and proud of. It's not something you typically see in a box. It's something that is really buzzy right now. And so we made that with a Marsan grape and it's really beautiful and tastes great. So we're excited about that. And then expanding at retail in different markets, like that's a huge area of focus for us. Our direct-to-consumer channel is absolutely on fire. So we're, you know, investing in that and building that, but we want to be in more states. You know, we want people to be able to go into their local wine shop and pick us up or their local Whole Foods and pick us up. And so that's a huge area of focus for us and we'll be expanding quite a bit and through the rest of the year. Probably have time for just one last question here, but I wanted to ask sort of a controversial wine question for you guys. Curious on your opinion. Is ice in red wine ever okay? <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> ice cubes in red wine? Are people yes. doing that? People I, do that? Sorry. I'm okay. Italian. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, but I do it. I, this is horrible because I'm like a wine. I have like all I have certifications. Like I've worked in wine. I don't mind a bit of ice in wine, which is very controversial. And people will tell you not to do it. I chill my red wine. I don't put ice in it, but I definitely put ice in white wine and rosé and I love it. So I think that's what's so great about wine is that there's no right or wrong. It's just whatever you like and you feel like doing is the correct thing. <laughs> my dad's going to listen to this podcast and he's going to be like, <gasps> I, I do have one more wine. question, actually. Um, champagne. How do we get champagne into this? Oh, we... We don't know. Yeah, uh, we would love we would to do love that. To. That would make me the most happy uh, person. I, I used to work for Paris Jouet Champagne. I'm a big champagne girl. But right now, I don't think the technology exists that we could Ooh. find. So I think we can, there's the capability to do it in cans. But to my knowledge, it's not possible in box wine. So we're working on it and we'll keep you posted because yes, we're, we're going to find a way. Keep me posted. <laughs> we we'll get the exclusive on that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's all the time we have, but this has been an absolute pleasure. So thank you both for coming on today. I'll definitely be keeping my lookout for the wine here in New York, and we'll be excited to hear about future updates down the road. Thank you so much for having us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Becca. Thank you, Dom. Yes. So nice to speak with both of you. Thanks for coming on. Well, that was our conversation with Allison and Lauren. Dom, what'd you think? I, you know, I, I thought it was uh, interesting. I really like the product, but I'm also biased because I like wine. So mm -hmm. yeah, it was really cool though. Yeah. No, I definitely, I don't drink that much wine. I like it. But I'm more of a beer girly through and through, so I don't think to buy wine. But I think their packaging is definitely like catered to people like me who would be like, hmm, I'm going to buy a bottle of wine this time. And I'm going to see that and be like, ooh, that looks that looks flirty. Like, I'm going to buy that. It looks so aesthetically pleasing. Like, I was just imagining myself throwing like, like, oh, I'm throwing a little movie party at, in my, my little shoebox studio. And then it's like time to break out the wine. And then I pull that out and everyone's like, oh, my gosh, that's, you know, I guess fancy 
aesthetically pleasing wine, but in a box. Like, I don't know. I know. And that was it was really pretty. Yeah. And I feel like the way they talked about it, too, that was sort of like intentional with the branding, thinking of those scenarios where you would be like proud to bring this out in front of your friends, which is definitely I feel I understand why they're doing it for this product specifically. But that's not something you hear often when talking to consumer founders, like that concept of like people being proud to show that they use this product. But I guess that's what you get when you're building in a space, which they definitely touched on, that there is this sort of stigma around the box wine space. What did you think about how they said they think they can kind of combat some of that ingrained stigma? Yeah, I mean, of course, there's a stigma around box wine. I never realized, I guess, how it was like impacting people's lives. You know, you go to a party, you bring box wine or you don't bring box wine. People just want to drink. But I guess it's also nice to have pretty box wine so that I guess you personally don't feel weird with bringing just not pretty box wine. (laughs) I don't know. I guess I didn't really realize how deep the stigma goes. I know. Because on the one hand, I hear what they're saying. I definitely have some of those memories from college. Take it out of the box. Bring that bag of wine like on the train if we're going out to a party or something like that. But then on the other side of that, I definitely know people in my family and friends who just like drink nicer boxed wines. So like I definitely can like hear them on the stigma. But I'm also like, I don't think the stigma is the same for everyone. They may have painted it with a bit of a broad brush. Yeah, because I'm wondering how big is this stigma? I mean, like, again, so nice to have, you know, an alternative. But also, this product is $20. And you could easily also just go to a wine store or wherever liquor is sold near you and get like a ten ninety nine bottle of actual wine. So it's like, how many people are, are struggling with this in their daily lives? I don't know. Mm-hmm. But it's nice to have an alternative. Definitely. And something else I thought was really interesting was their fundraising journey. Because I was definitely surprised, like, talking about, oh, we have to do all these design choices to get consumers interested. We have to be really intentional on that side. That when they went and pitched this to investors, they were like, oh, no, fundraising was super easy. Like, we raised double what we wanted to do. And there's almost like a little bit of a disconnect there if they are saying there's a stigma, because in theory, the investors would see that as a potential hurdle as well. So I was curious what you thought about that. Yeah, I mean, I thought they were just very, very lucky because the funding landscape for women entrepreneurs especially is fraught, harrowing. I mean, there's so many words you could use to describe it. I mean, it sounded like they found a pretty good group of investors and they were probably already well acquainted with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And one other thing that stood out to me was the concept of getting into a heavily regulated industry like this. Obviously, Allison said she has a ton of background here, which is super helpful. But I know just from also having family who works in this space, that stuff is pretty difficult to deal with. My boyfriend had a job for a while where he pretty much just dealt with the state liquor authority and beer companies based in New York. And there's so many nuances there, so many little headaches. That beer wants to step one foot out of New York. There's like a slate of other things you need to do, a slate of forms and stuff like that. And it sounds like they have a nice approach of trying to upfront do all of that things for what, what happens down the line. But from what I know, it seems like that space changes a fair amount and has changed quite a lot in the last few years. So yeah. I'm curious kind of like how they'll be able to keep everything in line going forward. 
I know. And it's really interesting in terms of alcohol and what you can, how you can advertise it. I wonder how much social media allows companies like this to get away from the traditional hurdles of having a billboard in Times Square versus just making an Instagram post. I wonder how new age alcohol companies are able to use you know, Instagram to get around those laws. Because mm-hmm. we also asked them about expanding into Europe which I think would be really, really cool to have, like, I don't know, an Italian Chianti and a box wine or something. I don't know. I'm like already mapping out their business journey. But I imagine, you know, even those regulations of shipping and I don't know, can it be champagne if it doesn't come from the champagne region? I don't know. I mean, I imagine there's like, there's so much nuance to it all. But yeah, they seem to be handling it all really well. And it's so interesting what you said about the advertising. You're right. We should have asked them about that because- I recently just did a whole thing about cannabis startups advertising and how like they were so happy that Twitter essentially said we're going to write rules for it because they were like rules, guidelines. We don't have that. It's so hard to figure out what you can and can't post. So I'm curious about the alcohol side because I definitely feel like I see more alcohol ads, but I mean, I'm sure they're held to the same guidelines as some of the other ones. Like, of course you can't, you know, show an ad that's going to be seen by a 13 year old or something. So I am curious how they do navigate that. It's interesting because like I was talking to a founder of a sex tech company today um, Mm -hmm. and she was saying how they also have really strict advertisement rules and even like down to the banks that would work with them. And it reminded me a lot of when I spoke to the founder of an alcohol brand like during the pandemic or something in terms of her talking about the way that they had to advertise during that time because obviously everybody was drinking a lot. But you don't want to also encourage everyone to drink a lot, even though everyone totally is. So it's kind of like, how do you balance navigating advertising something like this? It's kind of like you have to do something like the unspoken. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I mean, it seems like because this is a luxury product, they might have like an entirely different consumer base that they're marketing toward. And it allows them to probably have an entirely different marketing strategy that might like they're probably not looking for a billboard in Times Square or something. Yeah. No, that's so true, especially with a company like this trying to like draw that line and advertise but not like push people who maybe like don't need to be pushed in this way. And it's the same way of like a sports betting company advertising. You obviously want customers, but you don't want people with gambling addictions to be made worse <laughs> on your product, of course. So no, that's such a good point. And I'm, I am curious kind of how this will play out for them because – Wine definitely doesn't have as much innovation, I feel like, especially compared to maybe some of the other genres of alcohol. So I think wine has been struggling to get like a younger demographic interested for the last few years. So it is interesting to see innovation like this in the space. And I am curious if we'll see sort of other people jumping in if they see like this company ends up being successful. Yeah, I mean, it has all the the things that would make millennials and Gen Zers want it. It's just mm-hmm. really, it's so pretty. <laughs> like, I'm just imagining it on my counter. And then also, like, I'm sure the wine is good. I haven't tried the wine. But if the wine is good, it's a bonus. If not, you know, really cute to have on a counter. And that mm-hmm. alone, yeah, I, it's interesting because it seems like a trend is a lot of people not drinking a lot or saying that they're going to stop. But then also, I have no idea how true that is. Like, mm-hmm. how many people are actually doing what they're saying in terms of just not drinking anymore? Like, how big is the non-alcoholic movement? But I guess it might not even matter because if they start creating non-alcoholic products, it would be that market. They would have that market as well. Definitely. No, I think it'll definitely be both a company and a space to watch. 
as we sort of see this play out, especially if they get bigger venture investors and stuff down the line too, it'll be really interesting to see who sort of props this space up. But hopefully we'll be able to have them back on or something in the future and figure out kind of how things have gone. Yeah. Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter Becca Skutak, alongside senior reporter Dominic Midori-Davis. Found is produced by Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel. Our illustrator is Bryce Durbin. Found's audience development and social media is managed by Morgan Little, Alyssa Stringer, and Natalie Kreisman. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. <laughs>